Good morning. Steve, our uh, senior minister, usually does the preaching. You'll, you can recognize him because he's much taller than me. <laughs> but uh, uh, he's on vacation, um, and uh, he's uh, enjoying uh, a little bit of, of vacation before school starts again up in, in Michigan. So you get me today, you get to hear from the youth minister. Uh, but I'm excited to, to be here and share with you uh, as we continue our Room for Doubt series. Um, this morning we're going to explore some doubts that people have about the Bible. Uh, last week we talked about uh, doubts that people have about God's existence. Uh, this week we're going to ha- talk about doubts that people have about God's Word. Uh, many people won't believe what the Bible has to say uh, because they think it's full of myths uh, and mistakes and contradictions. Uh, you may have heard some of those objections as well. You may have some of those objections as well. Um, and, and we're going to take a closer look at that this morning. But before we do, uh, if you just join me in, in prayer quickly here. Father God, I trust you. I've grown to trust your word, but if I'm honest, Lord, there have been times in my life when, when reading your word has caused me to question, where reading your word has caused me to doubt, has caused me to wonder, and, and God, thank you that that's okay. Thank you that you are a big enough God to handle our doubts, to handle our questions, uh, to handle uh, the, the things that we, that we think we know, and to help lead us into the truth of what you know. Father, lead us into the truth this morning. It's in your son's name. Amen. So before we moved here, Sarah and I owned a house in Michigan. Uh, And the whole time we owned that house, we had animal problems. Um, We dealt with uh, an entire nation of squirrels in our attic uh, at one point. Uh, We had birds making uh, nests in our roof vents. Uh, I, I found a possum in our garage at one point. Um, But our most traumatic animal experience happened one night when uh, Sarah's mom, my mother-in-law, was staying with us. I was uh, down in our basement watching TV when all of a sudden something came flying around the corner out of the furnace room and and just buzzed by my head. And I was so surprised and shocked I didn't get a good look at it. I didn't know what that was. Things don't usually do that. And uh, and it came by again for a second pass. And when it came by again, I saw that it, it was, in fact, a bat. And, uh, and I responded, in, I, I wish I, in that moment, looking back, if I had it over again, I, I would have been a man. You know, like I would have stood up and just like caught that thing out of the air. Because I guess that's what men do, I don't know. But uh, in the moment I didn't, um, I, instead I, I screamed like a little girl and ran upstairs um, and told my wife... <laughs> I didn't know what, I, I thought like, well, you know, she'll, maybe she'll take care of it. And uh, when I told my wife, uh, her response was uh, to also scream like a little girl and run into our bedroom and lock it. Um, and, and so uh, apparently that meant that it was my, my job to handle this problem. This, was, I guess, was, was a man issue in our home. So uh, fortunately for me, my mother-in-law was there and she came to the rescue. See, I'm a city boy. Decatur is the smallest city I've ever lived in in my whole life. I grew up just north of Detroit. Uh, I, I went to school in Lansing and Michigan. I've always lived in big cities. I don't know how to deal with this stuff. This doesn't happen to me. And so fortunately, my mother-in-law was there. She uh, knew just what to do. Uh, she asked if we had a cookie tray, like a baking sheet. Yeah. She said, well, give me that and find a box, like a cardboard box. Okay. Those are interesting tools, but... I'll go with that. 
Uh, and so we, we equipped ourselves. Uh, Sherry, uh, my mother-in-law, had the cookie sheet. Uh, I had the cardboard box. And uh, I, think, I think, actually, if I remember it correctly, I put on some protective equipment, like my snow boots. Like, like the bat was going to eat my feet. I don't know. And, uh, and so we headed for the basement once we were equipped. And, and when we hit the bottom, <laughs> we hit the bottom of the stairs. I'm not kidding. The bat flew straight at my mother-in-law's face. Like the second we got downstairs. And and again, I screamed like a little girl and started to run upstairs. My mother-in-law gave out like a war cry and, and swung the baking sheet. And it's like, bong, you know, like really satisfying sound. She caught that thing first try, straight out of the air, went like flying across the basement. And I'm standing there stunned at what just happened. And she looks at me and she's like, put it in the box. <laughs> oh, right, I'm the box man. So, so then... Then I had a bat in a box, and, and it was still alive. And so it stopped being stunned at, at one point, and so I had this bat in a box, and the box is doing one of these, you know, all over the room. And, uh, and I don't know what to do. And so I'm, I'm headed outside to let the bat go, uh, but my mother-in-law uh, wasn't so sure that was <laughs> the right thing to do. She told me that she once read that if you release a bat, uh, even if you, like, drive miles away and release the bat, the bat will come straight back to your house. Like it has a personal vendetta against you. Um, And she said, I'm not kidding. She said that we should douse the box in gasoline and light it on fire. Because, get this, that way the other bats would know not to come to our house. Because their buddy was on fire in the front yard. And I guess that makes sense in like a Genghis Khan sort of barbarian way. Like, like putting the bat's head on like a little pike in the front yard or something to like warn off his friends. But it sounded kind of cruel to me to set a bat on fire. So I, I vetoed that idea. Uh, I said, you know, you got anything else? Is there anything else maybe we could do? Um, and that's when she asked for a hammer. Oh, Yeah. She grabbed a hammer and told me she was going to count to three and she wanted me to open the box. And she's my mother-in-law, so I did what I was told. I mean, I I know my place. So on three, I open the box. She closes her eyes, looks away, and just starts wildly swinging a hammer into the box. And, uh, And I'll spare you the gory details. I'll just tell you that we never saw that bad again. Any of the pieces of that bat we never, <laughs> never saw again. <laughs> I, I'm not sure where my mother-in-law heard about setting bats on fire to convince their friends to stay away. Um, but I have since done some research and I can stand here before you and assure you that's a myth. <laughs> that doesn't work. That's not real. That's, so if you have a bat in your house, don't set it on fire. My mother-in-law was wrong, right? That's not the, the correct course of action. And you know, it's funny. It's a funny story, but a lot of people, a lot of people think the same way about the Bible. A lot of people think that the Bible is just filled with myths and mistakes and stories that aren't true, things that never happened, things that, that intelligent, thinking people just don't believe anymore. And I think we have great reasons to believe that this book is exactly what it claims to be. That this book is the word of God. 
And this morning, I wanna look at four challenges that people sometimes make about the Bible, and I wanna walk through some ways to respond. And so here we go. The first challenge is this. I hear this sometimes, where people say that the New Testament was written too late to be reliable history. People will say, didn't you know the New Testament wasn't written until uh, 100, 200 years after the time of Christ? And, And in that amount of time, all kinds of legends and stories and myths and wrong information crept in uh, and corrupted uh, what the original stories said, and so we can't take it seriously as a book. We can't take it seriously as history. And if they were right, if that were true, if the Bible were, were written 100 years, 200 years after the events, that would trouble me as well. That would cause me to have some doubts. It would bother me. The, the reality, though, is that that's just not true. That's just not what happened. In fact, the events recorded in the New Testament are based on eyewitness testimony. Uh, the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He really liked naming books after himself. Anyway, he wrote the book of Revelation as well. I guess he didn't name that one after himself. But he was clear in 1st John that he was just reporting what he had seen. And this is what he said in 1st John 1.1. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Most of what you read in the New Testament comes directly from people describing things they saw, things that they were there for, things they felt while Jesus was preaching and teaching, things that happened while they were walking with him along the road or sharing a meal with him. These were eyewitness accounts. And other parts of the New Testament were put together by people who got their information from eyewitnesses. So maybe they weren't there, but they did research and talked to people who were. Like, like Paul and Luke wrote this way. Uh, they weren't there, but they talked to people who were. In Luke chapter 1, he makes a point of explaining how he did all of his research in order to write his gospel. Luke chapter 1, verse 1, he starts his whole gospel by saying this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, we don't know who that was, was Luke's friend, I suppose, so that you may know the certainty of the things You've been taught. See, Luke was careful in his research so that his friend Theophilus and all of his readers could be certain about the accuracy of the events that he describes in his gospel. He he took great care to be accurate as a historian. So not only were the New Testament books based on eyewitness testimony, they they were also written early. Uh, the, The argument goes that they were written late and that there was so much time for things to change and people to forget what happened uh, that that the Bible can't be trusted. Well, that's just not true. The books were written early. Um, New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg explains that the book of Acts, his quote will be up behind me, which was written by Luke, ends apparently unfinished. Paul is a central figure of the book, and he's under house arrest in Rome. With that, the book of Acts abruptly halts. What happens to Paul? We don't find out from Acts, probably because the book was written before Paul was put to death. 
And that means Acts cannot be dated any later than 62 AD. And having established that, we can move backwards from there. Since Acts is the second of a two-part work, we know that the first part, the Gospel of Luke, must have been written earlier than that. And since Luke incorporates parts of the Gospel of Mark, that means Mark must have been even earlier. So if you allow for maybe a year or so for each of those books, you end up with Mark's Gospel written no later than 60 AD, maybe even in the late 50s. So if Jesus were put to death in 30 or 33 AD, scholars don't uh, quite agree on whether it was 30 AD or 33, depending on when he was born, we're talking about a maximum gap of about 30 years or so between when Jesus died and when most of the New Testament was finished. And historically speaking, that's a newsflash. That's, that's fast. I want to try a little experiment here. Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you remember when Ronald Reagan became president. Raise your hand. Okay, that's the year I was born, just to make y'all feel old. <laughs> you can be mad at me later. I'll get emails about that. Uh, raise your hand if you were alive when Michael Jordan won the Rookie of the Year in 1985. You were alive in 1985. Raise your hand if this is a personal favorite of mine. Raise your hand if you went to a movie theater to watch Back to the Future Part 1. Okay, a, a number of you. I'm glad that went over. Good. Raise your hand. I don't know if you remember this or not. Raise your hand if you remember using Windows 1.0. Windows 1.0. Some of you. Some of you were using Windows 1.0 back in the beginning of Microsoft. Well, I'll tell you, most of the New Testament would have been written within a time frame similar to the amount of time that's passed since those events happened. Many of you remember firsthand those events. You saw the movie. You, know, you watched Michael Jordan. You used Windows, right? You remember those things happening. If someone today tried to rewrite history, someone today tried to say Michael Jordan never won the Rookie of the Year award, that was a myth. Those of you who were alive to watch it happen could easily refute that. I, I saw it with my own eyes. I, I was there. You know, I went to a couple games that year. He was great. He had, I mean, we could cite statistics. We know. We were there right? You could refute those things easily because you were there. There is no record of any contemporaries of the New Testament writers trying to challenge the facts of what they wrote. Everyone who was there insisted, yes, these are accurate stories. This is what happened. There were plenty of chances for people to say, wait a minute, Luke. Wait, hang on, John. You are exaggerating that story. That's not what happened. We have no record of any of that, type, of that type of early criticism. None. The next thing people say about the Bible is this, that it is full of myths and stories about miracles that can no longer be believed by thinking people. Miracles just don't happen, is what people are saying. Um, because the Bible has stories, stories about prophecies coming true, about virgin births and divine miracles and walking on water and rising from the dead. And those things are relatively common in the Bible and, and yet not so common in our experience. We don't see those things happening in our lives. And, and the thought is that we live in an age of science now and so we should stop believing in superstition. 
That's the, the, the dichotomy that's set up. We've got science versus superstition. And, and I found this. I found that most people who make this claim, that, that the Bible is just full of myths and, and unbelievable stories, most people that make that claim haven't actually looked into it for themselves. They haven't actually done any research. They're just repeating things that they've heard people say. And when I ask them about the results of their own study, most of the time they, they don't have uh, any, any answer because they, they feel that they don't have to investigate it because miracles don't happen. Why would I study something that's clearly false? Why would I study miracles when I know miracles can't happen? Uh, most of the time the person has already decided what they will believe without any real investigation at all. And that's bad logic. That's actually called circular reasoning. Um, that's what happens when you start with what you want to end with. This is what I want to believe, and so this must be true because this is what I want to believe. It, it looks like this. I'll put it on the screen. X is true because of Y, and Y is true because of X. You see how that goes in a circle. Someone might say that a shape is a square because it has four right angles, so that they know that, sh- that, that way they know that shapes with four right angles are squares. And the problem is, That's sometimes true. Sometimes shapes with four right angles are rectangles. But but a circular argument says that that I already know what's true in the end, and so this other thing about it must be true. What about this? Someone might claim that, that Michael Jackson is a great musician because his music was great. And so you ask, well, how do you know that Michael Jackson's music was great? And they say, well, because he was a musical genius. Musical geniuses make great music. That's a circular argument. It just goes round and round with nothing outside to support it. People say there can't be any real evidence for miracles because God isn't real. And they know that God isn't real because miracles don't really happen. You see how that's just round and round in a circle. That argument is based on something that someone believes ahead of time, not based on research They've done, and it doesn't prove anything. That's just faulty logic. Now, I can already hear, I can already hear the the counterpoint to this because I've heard it before, and it's this. And, And honestly, Christians, we need to be careful about this too because we use circular reasoning too. We use circular arguments a lot as well. Um, in fact, when we insist that the Bible is true because the Bible says that the Bible is true, that's a circular argument. The Bible says that the Bible's true. The Bible says that. But that argument isn't going to convince someone who doesn't believe in the Bible. Just because the Bible says it's true doesn't make it true. We're going to have to rely on evidence. We're going to have to turn to evidence outside of our circular reasoning, outside of the Bible says it's true, so it must be true. Well, yes, But that's a circular argument that's not going to convince someone who doesn't believe in the truth of the Bible. So instead, we ought to point people to evidence. Evidence, uh, like some of the things that Steve talked about last week. Um, Some of the evidence that Steve gave us for an intelligent designer who created uh, the universe and fine-tuned it by by turning all of the dials exactly the way they needed to be for life to exist. That's that's good evidence. Um, There's also a lot of powerful evidence about the Bible. For example, there really are amazing prophecies, predictions, that came true hundreds of years later. Listen to this one. I'm going to read you this prophecy about the Messiah. 
He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offering and prolong his, his offspring, excuse me, and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That sounds like it was written by Luke or John or one of the gospel writers about what happened to Jesus looking back. Listen to what happened. It was actually written over 700 years before Jesus was born by the prophet Isaiah. And that's just one of over 300 prophecies, and I'm being conservative with that number, that's just one of over 300 prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. Anybody can make a prediction. I can make a prediction. Lions are going to the Super Bowl. Detroit Lions, woo! Lions fan? I love that. I'm not the only one for a change. Sorry, I digress, but this is amazing. We have a connection. I don't know. I can't even finish. I can make that prediction, right? The Lions have never been in a Super Bowl. How likely is it to come true? Well, this year maybe more than other years, but still, how likely is it? Anybody can make predictions, but having them fulfilled is a different story. For example, what's the likelihood of a person predicting today the exact city where a future leader will be born a hundred years from now? I mean, how likely is that? That's what Micah did. Micah chapter 2, 700 years before Jesus. What about predicting the exact type of death that future leader would experience a thousand years from now when that type of death, when that style of execution hadn't even been invented yet? What's the likelihood of that happening? That's what David did in Psalm 22. That's what Isaiah alluded to in what I just read about how he was pierced for our transgressions, right? What's the likelihood of those predictions coming true? Some say that, that, some say that Jesus knew all those prophecies. I'm sure he did. He was well-versed in Scripture in the Old Testament. They say Jesus knew all these prophecies, and so he arranged to fulfill them. He like had a checklist that he walked around with and he checked them all off one at a time. I did that, I did that, I did that, you know, to make sure that he would be seen as the Messiah. Some would say that, but, but I would ask, 
how does someone arrange to be born in a certain family? How does someone arrange to be born in a particular city? The Old Testament predicted Bethlehem, the small town of Bethlehem that is where the Messiah would come from. How, how could Jesus arrange to be born there, especially because his parents didn't even live there? They had to travel there for a census. How could he arrange for that? How could Jesus arrange his own death by crucifixion? How could he arrange to have two criminals crucified at either side of him? How could he arrange to to convince his executioners ahead of time to gamble for his clothing at the foot of the cross? How could Jesus arrange for some of these prophecies to be fulfilled? It might be possible to fake one or two. It might be possible to say, uh, you know, that that the Old Testament said this about me, so I'm going to make sure I do that. But, But hundreds of them, hundreds of prophecies, some of them having to do with things Jesus had no control over whatsoever. It's just not possible for him to have faked that, for him to have arranged for those things to happen ahead of time. There's good evidence for the truth of the Bible. Jesus really did exist. He really did fulfill all of the prophecies about the Messiah. If you don't believe me, do a study. The internet's great. Pull up, pull up the internet, pull up a browser, look for prophecies about the Messiah. Uh, you'll find anywhere from 300 to like 426 prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. And look for yourself. Read those prophecies. And then look in the New Testament. Did Jesus fulfill that? Did he do that? Did this, is this true about him? I, I, look at it. Look at it yourself. Don't take my word for it. Look at it yourself. I, I think that you'll be satisfied and amazed at, at the way that Jesus fulfilled prophecy. He healed people, he cast out demons, he walked on water, he turned water into wine. And, and none of his, this is interesting too, none of his enemies, because he had them, none of his enemies ever denied that his miracles were real. None of his enemies ever made the accusation that it was some kind of parlor trick or some kind of magic show what Jesus was doing. They didn't try to trap him that way, they tried to trap him on technicalities. They said, oh Jesus, you healed that guy's shriveled hand on the Sabbath day. Yeah, but he healed that guy's shriveled hand, right? They, they tried to catch him because he did it on the Sabbath day, but they didn't question that he actually healed that guy's shriveled hand. That's amazing. They didn't question it. They saw it happen with their own eyes. Even the people who wanted to kill Jesus, desperately wanted to kill Jesus, didn't say that he was fake, that he was phony, that, that he wasn't who he claimed to be. They just tried to stone him for the things that he said and did. In fact, and even further, many of the stories of the Bible, many of the stories about Jesus have been confirmed by sources outside the New Testament, people who didn't even believe. Uh, Romans like Tacitus and Suetonius, the Jewish historian Josephus, we like to quote him in church a lot. These guys, uh, these guys affirmed numerous stories about things that Jesus said, things that Jesus did. They affirmed that he, he was a real person. If you're interested in stuff like that, there's a great book. It's called The Historical Jesus. It's written by a guy named Gary Habermas. And, uh, and that book lists 39 ancient sources outside the Bible that support over 100 facts about who Jesus was, what Jesus said, things Jesus did. There are multiple accounts in history that support that Jesus was a real person who really said what the Bible says he said, really did what the Bible says he did. You don't have to just rely on, well, the Bible says it, but there's no other evidence. Well, that's just not true. There's lots of evidence. And even though that's true, I know that some people still have a hard time believing that the miracles Jesus did were real. 
And I understand that. I get that. But listen, if the God that we discovered last week, this intelligent designer of the entire universe, if that God is real, then miracles are nothing for him. I mean, you understand that? If, if, if that God is real, a God who can create something out of nothing, then doing a miracle is really not that big a deal. You know, causing things like a virgin birth or a man named Jonah to survive in the belly of a big fish or healing people or, or even resurrections from the dead would be easy for a God who created the entire universe, right? Calming a storm, walking on water, those are no problem for a God like that. Because if God wrote the laws of the universe in the first place, then temporarily suspending them to do a miracle is not that big a deal. He can do that in theory. And that's what we would believe, right? In theory, if this God is who he says he is, he could do the things he says he he does. So let's move on. Third one. Some people say that you still can't believe the Bible, you still can't trust it because it's full of mistakes, it's full of contradictions, the Bible contradicts itself. Um, And my first response to this is always to ask that they show me uh, some of the mistakes or contradictions that bother them. Um, Because I want to have a conversation. I'm not naive. I know that there are things in the Bible that are very difficult. So let's talk about the things that you've found. And honestly, most people that that talk to me about this can't think of any. They can't think of any examples. It's not that they're not there, but it's because they haven't really studied the Bible for themselves. Um, They're just relying on things that they've heard someone say or or things that they read on the internet. Don't, Don't be that person. Don't, don't attack things that you don't know about. Don't attack things that you haven't researched or studied. Um, at least take the time to, to learn about some things before you come out swinging. Don't, don't be that guy or girl. Um, now, honestly, some people do have some specific examples. Some people have looked into it. They've studied for themselves. They have specific examples of things that bother them in the Bible. Because the, tr- the reality is Bible writers sometimes use general truths. They summarize things in general. This is what happened. Uh, this is a summary of, of, of what I saw uh, as an eyewitness. They, they use round numbers sometimes. You ever wonder why the numbers were so round all the time? Like, man, you know, he fed 5,000 people. There were, you know, this many, like, not 5,003? You know, like, not, not, there weren't any, like, little babies there. Like, just 5,000. And, and so you, you wonder, well, it's because a lot, of, a lot of Bible authors round their numbers. And that's okay, Right? Um, so, so they use summaries, they use round numbers, they, they use figures of speech that, that we may not recognize today uh, because we don't speak ancient biblical Greek. So we don't recognize the figures of speech that they were using and so we think they're being literal when actually they're just using a popular figure of speech that was, uh, that was being used at the time. They, they aren't always as detailed as we would like them to be. I wish you would just give me more detail. How did that happen? What happened next? And then they don't. It just moves on to a whole new story and we're left wondering what I mean, what happened next? What did the people say? That's amazing. Why, don't, why didn't you tell me more? Right? And an example of this, and, and, and this might put me in hot water, but it's true. There are minor differences in each of the Gospels about what exactly happened that first Easter morning. You know, when Jesus raised from the dead, the Gospels all talk about uh, what happened, who he saw, who he appeared to, and there are some differences in those stories. That's one of the things that, that people will point to a, a lot, actually. Um, but it shouldn't really be surprising, should it, to find that there are some minor differences in eyewitness stories? Because isn't that what we see all the time? 
that, that when, when people are interviewed for a news story, uh, they tell the same exact story. They talk about what happened and, and one person has the perspective from over here and another person was inside the house and their perspective is a, a little bit different about what happened. It's the same story. It doesn't make it untrue. It's just uh, some different perspective. Any reporter or, or detective for that matter will tell you that's kind of the nature of the beast. That's the way testimony, eyewitness testimony works. Um, in fact, if if a, a, an investigator were to run into everyone having the exact same story with the exact same detail, they would question whether that story was actually true. That, that, that would indicate to them that there's definitely a possibility that these guys all got together ahead of time to get their story straight. And so I would argue that the fact that there are some minor differences in the eyewitness accounts actually strengthens the argument that they're real, that they're true, that they are accounts of things that people actually saw happen. The New Testament is a collection of eyewitness accounts and letters to churches, and and it's not supposed to read like a science textbook. It's not meant to give details about every interaction, about every experience. All the Gospels say that the tomb was empty. All the Gospels say that disciples saw the risen Jesus. All the Gospels say that, that people talked with him after he rose from the dead. They, they all agree on the, the bones of the story. They, they have some different perspectives on what exactly happened and, and the timeline. And just because they remember some details differently doesn't make the story untrue. Still, I, I will grant that not every claim about contradictions in the Bible is easy to answer. I'm making it sound like, oh, it's easy, brush it off. There's some hard stuff in the Bible. There really is. I mean, if there wasn't, I wouldn't have spent a lot of money and, and a lot of years of my life going to Bible college to learn about the Bible, right? It's hard. It's not an easy book. There are hard things in the Bible. There are things that can be very confusing about Scripture. And that's why it's so important that you don't just take my word for it, that you don't just take your parents' word for it, that you don't just say, well, that's what we believe because we're Christians. It's so vitally important that you look into it for yourself, that you read this book. It's so important that you read this book. Because this book has been affirmed over and over again throughout history. This isn't the first time that the Bible is under scrutiny in history, and yet it remains. It is still here. We are still reading it and still living by the truth it contains. Certainly, a book like that is at least worth your study. It's at least worth some of your attention. Certainly, it's at least worth the read. The last one I want to talk about this morning is this, that the Bible has been corrupted over time. The objection kind of goes this way. Since the Bible's been translated and retranslated so many times, because, I mean, how many translations are out there? You go to a Bible bookstore and it's like Bible Mart. <laughs> you know, Bibles are everywhere. Um, it's been translated and retranslated so much that you can't really trust anything that it says. Um, the, 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 uh, the contention is that it's like a game of telephone. You guys play telephone when you were kids that you pass along a message and you whisper it to the person and then the person, and then as you go through the line, the message gets all muddle, muddled and, and changed and you get to the end and the, and the message is almost unrecognizable from, from where it started. That's, that's the contention of what has happened to the Bible. And the problem with that is that that just is not accurate. That's not an accurate understanding of how translating the Bible works. Um, your Bible, the Bible you hold in your hands, 
uh, is not the result of some long line of translating from, uh, from Greek to Latin to German to English uh, where everything gets lost in translation. That's just not what happens. Um, any good Bible translation comes straight from the original languages. Uh, Hebrew for the Old Testament, Greek for the New Testament. It, every good Bible translation goes straight back to those original languages and, and translates that language into the language uh, that the, the Bible needs to be in for people to read it, right? Uh, the, the goal is to put, was, to put what was written in the original Greek, because honestly, how many of us read ancient biblical Greek, to put what was written in the original Greek language or, or Hebrew language for the Old Testament into current words, Because honestly, and and I may get in trouble for saying this too, but honestly, the King James Bible is almost as foreign to me as as Greek. I mean, I studied some Greek in college, and so I kind of know how to read it if I'm careful and I go through the study. But some of the language of some of the older English translations of the Bible is, is just as confusing to us because it contains words and, and figures of speech that we don't use anymore. Uh, just like the original language did. And, and so the goal is to translate these, these texts into current words that carry the original meaning, but they still allow people to understand what the Bible was talking about today. And that's a difficult job. Uh, that, that's difficult work. That's why Bible translators are so incredibly careful uh, to get it right. Now it's true, it's true that we don't have the original handwritten documents of the books of the Bible. Um, th- those disintegrated a long time ago. Uh, before modern document preservation technologies existed. Um, But it's also true that we don't have original manuscripts for any ancient literary works. They all disintegrated. We we have, when it comes to ancient literature, we just have copies to rely on. Um, You know, books like the Bible or the Odyssey or the Epic of Gilgamesh, we, we have to rely on copies that were made of the originals. And the thing that makes the Bible really stand out is that we have so many early copies of the Bible. Uh, According to New Testament scholar Daniel Wallace, we have an embarrassment of riches compared to the data the classical Greek and Latin scholars have to contend with. The average classical author's literary remains number no more than 20 copies. 20 copies of, of a book is usually plenty to validate that, okay, these copies all are, are in agreement. That must be what the original text said. The Bible uh, we, we have over 5,800 early copies uh, of the books of the New Testament. Um, that's a lot more than 20. You, know, you can do the math for yourself. <laughs> it's a lot more than 20, right? Um, the second most copies of any ancient literary work is 643, uh, and that's the Iliad, if you're interested, that written by Homer. And no one disputes the historical accuracy of the Iliad. Uh, everyone uh, agrees that, that that is what the, the author wrote, right? Plato, you're familiar with him. Plato's works are widely accepted as authentic. They're not forgeries, uh, even though we only have seven copies uh, of Plato's works. And the earliest of those seven copies uh, is dated 1,300 years after Plato died. Um, that's a long time between when Plato died and the copy that we have to wonder is it real? And yet there's really no, no wondering that, oh, well, that, that wasn't, Plato didn't actually say that or it, Seven copies, 1,300 years is enough for us, and yet 5,800 copies of, of the Bible, and we still call this book into question. And not only that, but some of the New Testament copies were written less than 50 years after the original books. We have copies that, that, are, that are that old, 
You know, one of, some of our oldest copies are only 50 years after the original, uh, the original works were written. That's incredibly old by comparison. Um, there's similar evidence for the Old Testament. I don't have time to get into Old Testament evidence uh, this morning, but the, you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. That discovery contains a full book uh, of the prophet Isaiah uh, that's much, much older than anything we ever had before. Um, and, and, it's, and it's in agreement, almost exact agreement, with the, the later copies that we were working from originally. Um, it, the, the evidence that we have of of these very old copies of original, uh, very old copies of the original manuscripts of the Bible is, is almost overwhelming. Um, and really the bottom line is that modern Bible translations are trustworthy renditions of what the Bible originally said. They, they can be trusted. So the New Testament was written early. Uh, it's based on eyewitness evidence from people who were there. Um, the, the Bible's not full of myths, uh, it does tell about amazing ways that God worked through Jesus, including fulfilling over 300 prophecies and, and doing miracles. Um, it's not full of contradictions either, and, and most of the, the discrepancies that we have are, are in minor details that, that make sense if we're talking about eyewitness accounts. Uh, and really, the Bible has not been corrupted over time. Uh, the Bible we use today, uh, the Bibles we use today are just very accurate. They're very reliable versions of what was originally written. Um, the evidence about the Bible tells us that the Bible can be trusted. Jesus' words in Matthew twenty four thirty five are true today. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And that has held true over thousands of years. And the thing is this. The Bible doesn't do you any good if you won't read it for yourself. It just doesn't. The Bible doesn't make you more spiritual because you carry it around in your backpack. It doesn't do you any good because you have it on your nightstand next to your bed. The Bible doesn't do you any good unless you will read it. And a lot of doubts about the Bible come from people who haven't read it, who haven't studied it. And if you've never read the Bible before, start with one of the Gospels. Read about Jesus. Start with John. Start with Matthew. Read all about Jesus, who he was, what he did, what he said. And maybe you've tried to read the Bible before. Maybe you started from the beginning and, uh, and, and it quickly got dry and boring and you couldn't finish it. I, I've had that experience before. If that's you, think about trying a different translation of the Bible. Think about reading something that's, that's, that's uh, fresh to your eyes, that you haven't heard uh, th- that version before. Um, think about starting in a different place in the Bible this time around. Think about reading it together with a few of your friends and then getting together and talking about it after, after you read. Um, the, the YouVersion Bible app, I don't know how many people are, are digital. I suspect many of you. Uh, there's an app uh, for the Bible. Uh, it was created, this is a fun fact, it was created by a guy who's actually from Decatur, uh, now works for Life Church TV. Uh, there's an app called YouVersion. Get that app. It's phenomenal. It has hundreds of translations that you can just choose from and read uh, anywhere you are. It has great Bible reading plans uh, that you can follow the plans. It'll send you an alert each day to like, hey, did you do your Bible reading? I'm like, oh, thanks. Guilt trip much. But right there on your phone, uh, you've got your Bible reading plans, all sorts of different, any way you want to interact with the Bible. It's all digital. You can do it on your computer. You can do it on your phone. You can do it on your iPad. It's great. It, it's a great, great tool. Uh, if you're digital, do that. Get, get, get that app. Um, 
Every Wednesday throughout this sermon series, uh, we have groups meeting here at the church from 6.30 to 8 o'clock to sit down and talk about some of the stuff that we're hearing about. Um, You have doubts, that's totally fine. Let's talk about that. Um, If you want to get together and talk, that's available to you. Because Romans 10, 17 says this, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. If you want to increase your faith, if you want to deepen your faith, the Bible is the way to do it. The, uh, the worship team is going to come back to the stage and uh, they're going to lead us in a song and, and I want to end with this challenge. It's, so, it's super simple. Read your Bible. <laughs> That's a challenge, right? Read your Bible. If you have doubts about the Bible, read it for yourself. If you're not sure about the Christian faith, if it's for you, read about it for yourself. If you doubt God's love for you because of the experiences that you've had in your life, read about the way God loves his people in the Bible. Read it for yourself. The Bible isn't a book that's designed to answer all our questions. That can be frustrating, but it's not designed for that. The Bible is a book that's designed to bring us closer to God. And I think that by reading the Bible, you'll find that it's everything it claims to be. I think you'll find that it's the the living and active word of God, useful for teaching and correcting and training us to live the lives God wants us to live. If you'd like to pray with someone this morning, I want to encourage you to go ahead and come come up to the front and find me. Um, We should have some prayer counselors on the sides of the stage here. Um, As we stand and sing together this morning, uh, let's, let's celebrate this amazing word of God. Before we sing... Carol, would you mind putting that verse from Matthew back on the screen one more time? Your word will be the last word. Your promises will stand forevermore. Thoughts and plans will come.